Well, this morning we conclude Matthew chapter 7 by looking really at the aftermath of the Sermon on the Mount. And while we were able to wrap up the final four verses last week, uh, today we're really going to look at the reaction from uh, the sermon itself, the reaction to the sermon that is garnered by the audience. The final two verses really here are not just about the reaction, but really it's more about the reason for the reaction. And so with that, I would invite you, if you haven't already, turn to Matthew chapter 7, the very end of this chapter, the last two verses, Matthew chapter 7. My sermon title today is The Authority of Jesus Christ, The Authority of Jesus Christ. Now, I looked back just at my calendar, my sermon calendar. We spent 33 weeks going through the Sermon on the Mount, and as we've seen, we've addressed a variety of topics from this sermon, and Jesus really deals with quite a few uh, bits of doctrine, points of doctrine. He really, he pronounces blessing in Matthew 5, verses 3 through 11, blessing on the poor in spirit, the mourners, the gentle, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He blesses those who are merciful, pure in heart. He blesses the peacemakers. He blesses the persecuted. And then in chapter 5, verses 13 to 16, he establishes the identity of his disciples, of his people, as the salt of the earth in the light of the world. In verses 17 to 20 of the same chapter, he declares the scriptures to be the unchanging word of God. He has no desire whatsoever to tear them down, to change them, to mute them, to soften them, but rather to see them affirmed and fulfilled. Verse 20, he establishes the standard of righteousness that must be attained to enter heaven by the way that is impossible for any of us. Therefore, we come to Jesus uh, in his own righteousness. And then throughout chapter 5, he repeats this phrase, you have heard it said, but I say to you. It's really a formula of teaching not born out of citation, but rather born out of origination. He addresses issues of morality and ethics. He talks about the heart. He talks about the soul. Even instructing the disciples on the way to pray to God in chapter 6, verses 6 through 13. He taught as judge and lawgiver, instructing on the nature of true judgment in chapter 7. He establishes the golden rule of love and charity. And at the end of chapter 7, he uh, issues a series of four sober and authoritative warnings, each one designed to instruct and activate the disciples toward faithfulness. And then he tells them at the very end of this, these four warnings, he tells them first of the way to heaven, verses 13 and 14. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, And the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Next, he warned them of, of those who would steer them away from this path of life. He says, next, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And then he says, you will know them by their fruits. And he warns of the danger of disobedience in 21 through 23. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he says, The one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he's the one who will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Salvation consists then 
of a changed heart, which therefore produces a changed life. It's not just what you say out of your mouth, it's what you say that is coming out of a heart that desires and does those things. A changed life is that which is built on the granite foundation of the Word of God. Look at verses 24-25. He says, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. However, before concluding this magisterial sermon, he utters one final Warning, effectively pronouncing judgment on those who would spurn and reject his teaching. Verses 26 and 27, he says, Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And with that, the sermon comes to an end. What is the reaction from the crowd? What are they thinking and feeling and how are they responding at these words? Look at verses 28 and 29. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Now in our time today, I want to first examine the context of these two verses I want to see what's here and why it's here. But then I also want to spend a significant amount of our time talking about one word, authority. Let's look at this verse together. Look at verse 28 again. Contains this phrase, when Jesus had finished these words. Now that phrase in the Greek, scholars have noted that this phrase itself functions as sort of a literary device uh, in the, the Gospel of Matthew to mark a transition point between large uh, parts of teaching. The sections that we see in Matthew's Gospel that conclude this phrase, uh, this appears in chapter 11, verse 1, uh, chapter 13, verse 53, chapter 19, verse 1, and chapter 26, verse 1. So they're sort of uh, buttoning up the end of long teaching sections. They mark major shifts in the Gospel itself, and here is no different. This is a major shift from his sermon to him beginning his, uh, his ministry here, or at least his healing ministry. And what's significant here is that this is a a transition from teaching to action, from teaching to action. Now, to be clear, there are more uh, teachings to come. This is not going to be the only point in this gospel that he teaches. In fact, Matthew's gospel is loaded with parables and teachings. He teaches all the way through. But specifically here, the next two chapters, chapter 8 and chapter 9, he's going to embark on an explosive healing ministry. Chapter 8 and chapter 9, you're going to see over and over again just the power of his ministry, what he does to heal people and and cleanse them and restore them and drive out demons and drive out disease. Many scholars have even noted that they have believed, based on the accounts of all the different times that it says all of Israel came out, they believe that for at least that three-year period, all of illness was banished from the nation of Israel. In effect, the miraculous signs performed by Jesus, they serve to validate and authenticate his message of teaching. It's one thing to say to a crowd of people that you've come from heaven. It's quite another thing to then wield the power of heaven. Anybody can walk up and say, oh, I've come from God. I have a message for you. And most people are skeptical and say, well, whatever. 
But as soon as I begin healing and casting out demons and changing your life, you say, well, maybe there's something to this. And that's what Jesus does. The miracles authenticate the message. However, at the end of this sermon, miracles were not needed. He does not need the miracles at this point. At the culmination of this teaching, the response is so earth-shattering that nobody could deny that something remarkable had just taken place. When Jesus had finished these words, these words referring to the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, 6, and 7, Matthew records the crowds were then amazed at his teaching. This is interesting. We know that a crowd of people had followed Jesus uh, all the way to the mountain, and when he began preaching, essentially the, the direction of the preaching was toward the disciples. He's talking to his people. He's binding the law of God and the application of the, by the Spirit. He's binding that to his followers. However, the whole crowd is standing there listening to him preach. We don't know how big this crowd was. It was certainly at least hundreds of people, if not even thousands of people. But even this early on, they knew that there was something special about Jesus. They just didn't know what. But the crowds heard his teaching, and they stood amazed. The Greek word used here in the original is ekplesso. It literally means struck with panic. It's as if somebody walked up to you and just struck you across the face, and you just stood there in awe. Literally, it means struck, astonished, shocked, amazed. And not only just the disciples, but everybody who was within earshot of this sermon. And the question is, well, what were they so amazed about? Was it his delivery? Was he just a really good preacher? I've heard good preachers in my time, and if you get to the end of the sermon, and wow, that was really good, and their skill in the pulpit is so good. And no doubt, Jesus is the most engaging communicator in history. I, I can't imagine that there'd be a, a better preacher in the history of the world than Jesus Christ. Was it his style, his rhetoric? I mean, was it the way he preached? Was it his, his, his usefulness of the, of the method here? I mean, you think about it, Jesus invented preaching. He invented the vocal cords he used to preach. So Jesus would certainly know how to do this. And yes, it would have been all those things, but in truth, it wasn't. It was his teaching. The Greek word is didache. It's literally the content of his instruction, his doctrine. His doctrine. That's what was amazing them. It was his teaching. It was his words. The collective teaching of the discourse. In what way? Look at verse 29. For, the word for there, it tells you that this is a result of something else. This is the reason. For, he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. The scribes were the religious teachers of the day. They were the Jewish theologians. They had been entrusted with all the biblical and theological instruction in Israel. They sat in Moses' seat, as Jesus says in Matthew 23, 2. In other words, they assumed the key prophetic role in Israel. And there was no one more educated and wise in the things of Scripture than the scribes. However, the scribes operated on a borrowed authority. A borrowed authority in their teaching. They were always accustomed to, to citing other rabbis or citing other writing, to appealing to tradition and historical interpretation. The more revered the teacher was, the more authoritative the teaching became. They would say things like, well, according to Rabbi Hillel, this verse means so-and-so. 
And the crowds would say, well, then, who can disagree with Rabbi Hillel? Greatest rabbi in history, apart from the Apostle Paul before Christ, right? Certainly. They always cited an authority to the multitude of teachers. and They never cited their own. Because in truth, they had none. And then one day, a man named Jesus of Nazareth arrived in Jerusalem, and he never quoted from anybody. Over and over again, he uttered this phrase, You have heard it said, but I say to you. That's a powerful phrase. It's very easy to read that in your Bibles and kind of gloss over it. It's just like textual garnish. But it's a powerful phrase. You have heard it said, implied all the other multitude of teachers. They've been telling you all these things, inciting this rabbi and this rabbi and this reading and this scripture, this tradition. But I'm telling you what this means. And then he'd blow their minds with his teaching, just leaving them absolutely amazed. And what amazed them beyond his clarity, beyond his accuracy, beyond his wisdom and his brilliance and his piercing application was his authority. They couldn't fathom it. They'd never seen it before. The Greek word that's used here is exousia. Literally, it means the freedom or power to act. The freedom or power to act. It can also be rendered as the word authority or it can be rendered as the right, the right to do something. It can mean jurisdiction, even rule. This is the first place that this word is used in the New Testament. It appears nine times in Matthew's Gospel alone, 39 times in all the Gospels. And all the times that it's being uh, used by the Lord Jesus, it's pertaining to the freedom or the power for him to do and say and act. Now Matthew records that what was so shocking to the crowds was that Jesus was teaching as one having authority. That's interesting, the, the, the verbiage there. He's teaching as one having authority. He spoke as if he was the authority. That's what was so shocking to them. This guy's coming to us and he's preaching as though he wrote the book. He did. But this was shocking for many. This was maddening for others. And Mark 1.22 repeats virtually the same sentiment as Matthew here, adding only a few verses later in verse 27, the people were amazed and began debating among themselves, saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? They couldn't fathom the teaching. They couldn't fathom the concept of an authoritative teaching in Israel. Luke 4.32, the crowds again were amazed at his message with authority. Interestingly enough, even in John 4, uh, excuse me, 746, when the religious leaders told the temple guard to go and fetch Jesus and bring him back so they could examine him, they come back empty-handed. And then the chief priests and the Pharisees, they ask the temple guard, they say, well, why did you not bring him? And they respond, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. We didn't arrest him because he started talking and we didn't know what to do. We've never heard anybody talk like this before. Now, I frankly have no idea what he said to them. But whatever he said to them, they didn't want to touch him. Jesus spoke as that he had complete authority, which could be nothing more than the ravings of a madman, except that everybody who heard him speak believed it, and no one was ever able to refute him. If you look at the content of the Gospels, and I challenge you to do this, this is a very helpful and interesting way to approach the, the Gospels. Read through the Gospels. I want you to try to find every single place where the Pharisees make some kind of a textual argument 
and Jesus has to go back on his approach or back on his teaching. It never happens. They can never seem to get him on anything. At the end of his life, the thing that they supposedly get him for is claiming to be God. That's what they crucify him for. Now, they make up a whole bunch of other reasons. He's, in, he's inciting an insurrection. He's a, he's a political leftist or whatever they're going to say about him. He's causing trouble. He's telling people not to pay their taxes. Whatever they're going to say. But in the end, he's nailed to the cross because he claimed to be God. Either he's not telling the truth, he's crazy, or he's God. But that's it. That's all they could get him on. Because every single time he opened his mouth, he spoke with authority and clarity and brilliance and accuracy. And the crowds were simply amazed, dumbstruck at his teaching. They never heard anybody speak so candidly and truthfully and clearly about the message of salvation, the way of righteousness, or the absolute wickedness of evil men. Jesus never wasted a syllable. He never uttered one error. He only ever spoke truth, grace, and authority. How exactly was his teaching authoritative? Well, it was not authoritative because of the quality of his ethics or the depth of his understanding, even though those things beyond, went beyond anything else. But rather, it was, the author- it was authoritative because every single utterance of truth originated from within himself. Let me say that again. It, his teaching was authoritative because every single utterance of truth originated from within himself. He claims in John 14, 6... I am the truth. He embodies truthfulness because he created truth. Well, where did he get such authority? How is it that Jesus has the right to go around and claim authority? Well, in many places in the Gospels, Jesus is quick to affirm that he received his authority from God the Father. Just for an example, in his high priestly prayer in John 17, Jesus prays to the Father. He cries out, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, even as you have given him authority over all mankind. After the resurrection, Jesus declares to his disciples in Matthew 28, 18, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. He says, all authority. And I double-checked the Greek, and the word for all is all. All authority has been given to Jesus Christ. All throughout the Gospels, we read the claims about Jesus making authority, authority over the creation, authority over demons and sickness and death, authority to forgive sins, authority for, to, for passing judgment, authority to send out the apostles, authority over the religious leaders, authority to give his life for his sheep, even the authority to raise himself from the dead. Ephesians 1.21 notes that Christ's position is that which is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Colossians 1.16 declares, For by Him all things were created, both in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by him and for him. That's a declaration of authority. 1 Timothy 6.15 calls Jesus the blessed and only sovereign. The 
King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is the only true and final authority. Now, it's easy for us to declare and affirm the authority of Jesus Christ with our lips. It's it's easy to say, oh, yes, I affirm Jesus is Lord. He has authority. But we also have to examine our own lives and examine the spheres in which we live to, to recognize and submit to that authority. And so for our time remaining here, I want to apply the Scripture's teaching on the authority of Christ in several realms of life. And we're going to look at four specific realms of life pertaining to the authority of Christ. Number one, Christ has authority over the individual. The individual. Before a person becomes a Christian, the Bible teaches that they are spiritually dead in their sins. There's nothing that they have in themselves. They are dead. Furthermore, when it comes to living your life, Romans 6 teaches that apart from Christ... We are slaves of sin and slaves of unrighteousness. So unless you're born again, unless you're a believer, you're walking around this world as a slave to your own sin. In fact, Jesus said in John 8.34, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. In other words, the reason we sin is because we are ruled by a heart that is wicked. And we have no choice. That's what James 1.14 means. When he says we are tempted and dragged away by our own desires. And so our master, our Lord, is our wicked heart. But when God saves a person, he he rescues them from the power and the penalty of their own sin. The Bible teaches that we are ransomed and we are redeemed and we're freed from our spiritual condemnation by the saving work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Whereas before, we're slaves to sin. But now, because of Christ, we actually become, as Romans 6 says, slaves to righteousness. If you're in Christ, you have a new master, a new Lord. And the Bible uses such vivid and powerful language that you actually become enslaved to the things of God and to the righteous work of God. That even though we battle in our own, the old man, the old flesh... The desire, the earnest desire of our heart is to then do the things that are pleasing to God. True believers hate their sin. They hate their fallen condition. And they love the things of righteousness. And they desire to strive to be like Christ. They strive for righteousness. Why? Because that's their master. He's their Lord. But Christ is the Lord. In fact, Lord indicates sovereignty, Authority over those who are subject to him. By affirming Jesus is Lord, we are submitting to his authority over our own lives. Now, regardless of whether you say Jesus is Lord, Jesus already is Lord. We don't make him Lord. I think that's a mistake that needs to be corrected. We don't make him Lord of our lives. He is Lord. The question is whether or not you're going to surrender and submit to him. Christ has the right, as Lord, to tell you how to think, tell you what to say, what to do, how to live. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 tells us that we are not our own. We were bought with a price. What is that price? Christ giving His life for us on the cross. He says, if you're not your own, 
and you're bought with a price, what's the conclusion? He says, therefore, we are to glorify God in our bodies. And so this modern notion, you can just do whatever you want. As a believer, no, you can't. No, you cannot. You're called and commanded by God to glorify Him in your body, in your life. Paul identified with this in Galatians 2.20. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And he says, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, I'm not my own man anymore. I was building my own life. I was building my own resume. I had quite the resume. But he says, when I stack up that old resume, what I was trying to build, I look at what Christ has done in me. He goes, this is all garbage. This is dung. This is trash compared to the glory of knowing Christ. And so Paul identified with this. He knew that Jesus as Lord means everything has changed. Everything is different. My life is not my own. I've been bought and paid for. I belong to Christ. And so therefore, I'm going to live my life to glorify him in every single possible way. It does not matter what it costs me. So if your life belongs to Christ, then he has authority over you that you would live for him. And so, beloved, beloved, glorify God in your body. Number two, Christ has authority over the family. The family. Beyond asserting lordship over the individual, Christ is lord over the family. And this really goes, I believe, in two main stages here. It starts with marriage. Marriage. In Genesis 2.24, God institutes marriage between one man and one woman. That's controversial for some silly reason today, but that's what marriage is. It's between one man and one woman, two become one flesh for life. That has always been the teaching, it always will be the teaching. Jesus affirmed and expanded this teaching in Matthew 19. He says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And so the Lord creates and institutes marriage. He joins people together in that marriage, and he commands them to stay together. Now, certainly there are biblical prescriptions for divorce when certain kinds of sin has been committed. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about God exerting his authority over your marriage. And you are called, if you're a believer, you are called and commanded to stay married to that person and to submit to Christ in that marriage. Furthermore, within the context of marriage, the Lord exercises authority over what couples can do. You can't just get married and say, all right, well, now that I'm married, that's done. I'm just going to go do my thing. Ephesians 5.21, husbands and wives are to become subject to one another. Here's the catch. Out of reverence for Christ. You don't become enslaved to each other to satisfy each other's whims. No, you become subject to one another out of the reverence and the fear of Christ. Christ is Lord of This marriage, you must say. And so everything you do as a spouse is in subjection to Christ. The Apostle Paul then delineates what that looks like in Ephesians 5. He says, Ephesians 5.22, Wives are to submit to their own husbands. Their own husbands is as to the Lord. They are to love their husbands and respect them and honor them. Husbands, therefore, also are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. This means selflessly. This means sacrificially giving her preference, sanctifying her in all godliness and all purity. 
Husbands, your wives should be more godly and more pure because they're married to you. Marriages are bound together under the authority of Christ and are commanded to function according to His will. With regards to children, Christian families are commanded to train them up according to Ephesians 6.4 in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We don't have children then turn them over to the world and say, well, good luck. The Bible tells us, commands us as parents to train up our children in the discipline, the discipline and the instruction. That means that you're teaching them and correcting them. Teaching them and correcting them out of reverence for God. And children themselves are under this authority as well. They are obliged by God, they are commanded by God to obey their parents. The Bible says, in the Lord, for this is right. And so in every aspect of marriage and family, Christ has authority. Number three, Christ has authority over His church. Over His church. And this, is, this has become the, the hot-button question and the issue of the day. Well, what is the church? It is the assembly of Christian believers. It is the assembly of Christian believers. Universally, it pertains to all those who have been saved by Christ. We've been called out of the world into communion with God, and therefore into communion with one another. So there's a universal expression of this. Every single person who is saved and belongs to Christ is in the church. But locally, it is the gathered assembly of believers for the sake of worship and fellowship. For the sake of worship and fellowship. Make no mistake, the church belongs to Christ. It does not belong to the pastor. It does not belong to the elders. It does not belong to the membership. It does not belong to the state. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. In fact, we are called the body of Christ. And therefore, members of one another. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We are members of the body, and Christ is the head, Ephesians 1.22. And so, because the church belongs to Him, He retains the sole authority over that church. And how does He mediate that authority? In two ways. Through the ministry of the Word, taught by qualified elders, and through the affirmation of the membership, bound by conscience to the Word. This is why we must have biblically qualified men who are competent to handle the Scriptures. It's vitally important. It's also why we must have regenerate church members who've been born again into Christ, who've been given the mind of Christ. Membership is not a matter of popularity. It's not a matter of finances. It's not a matter of location. Well, I'm closer to this church. I'm just going to join that one. Membership is all about whether or not you're a Christian. And when the body of Christ, when we can determine whether or not a person's coming in, if they're a believer, then yes, we welcome them in. Again, Christ is the head of the church. He retains full authority. Now, we don't have the right to run the church any way we want to. We follow His commands. What are His desires for us? Well, first of all, we're called to gather together This has been the pattern and practice of every single church since Pentecost. And while there is not an explicit command to gather, Hebrews 10.25 prohibits believers from making it a habit of forsaking the assembly. In other words, you're not in sin 
If you don't make it to church, I want to just make a footnote about that. There may be times when a believer chooses not to gather for a reason or simply cannot. That's not the issue. The issue is whether or not you're operating against the will of God by making it a regular practice of not gathering for worship and fellowship. Now, much of this, I want to say, is mediated by conscience. It's mediated by conscience. But I'm concerned that in our current climate, looking around the Western world, that all the churches and all of the countries around the world, believers are being trained and conditioned to forsake the assembly. And so I would just gently exhort you, gently exhort you, for those who have not been able to come, and for those, I mean, even anybody who's listening around, around the country, prayerfully consider, prayerfully consider how long you ought to be home. And if you're convinced by God to remain apart for a short season, then you have our full support, full support. But the bigger issue in my mind is that I'm seriously concerned that for some, they will never return to the assembly. I really, I am gravely concerned, not even just about our church, but about all the churches around the world where people are being conditioned and even, I'll even say this, bribed to stay home. God desires believers to gather regularly. But what does he command in the assembly? Again, the the gathering is the practice. That's how we get to be around each other. But what does he command in this assembly? How do we order our worship service? He commands the word of God to be read aloud, 1 Timothy 4.3. He commands the word of God to be preached, 2 Timothy 4.2. He commands us to pray together, Colossians 4.2. He commands us to sing together, Ephesians 5.19. There are governors and governments that are prohibiting churches from singing. That's a violation of Scripture. God commands us to partake in the ordinances of the Lord's table and baptism. That's 1 Corinthians 11, Matthew 28, 19. And for the sake of purity, He commands us to practice church discipline when it's appropriate, Matthew 18. Beyond all this, as the church is gathering for fellowship, we are called to fulfill the one another's of Scripture. To love one another, to serve one another, to care for one another, to bear one another's burdens, to love each other, to minister to each other. And that becomes increasingly difficult when we're not together. To be clear, I want to be very, very clear here. I'm not emphasizing the value of the assembly to shame those who are not yet able to rejoin us. Not at all. Rather, I'm emphasizing the biblical mandate for the assembly in order to speak to the very next point here. Number four, Christ has authority over government. In Romans chapter 13, Paul Paul gives a clear and helpful instruction on human government. I just want to read these verses to you. He says, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid." For it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on those 
or the, on the one who practices evil. I'm going to stop right there. So the Bible is clear here. God is the one who created and instituted human government for the purpose of keeping law and order, restraining evil, and punishing evildoers. And to the degree that the government upholds their duty is the degree to which they are operating according to the will of God. Again, the Bible is very clear that government is a minister of God. I like to tease police officers whenever I can. And I tell them, do you know that you're a minister of God? And they kind of, really? And they get excited for just a split second, and then they realize what that means. And then that's the opportunity to go to Romans 13. You're, you're ministering to, to all the people. You're governing over people and protecting them and keeping law and order as a ministry of God. And Christians are commanded by God to submit to human government. Titus 3.1, remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. And so we, as followers of Christ, we don't spurn government. We don't shake our fist at government. Rather, we subject ourselves to the authority that's instituted by God. We are obedient. We follow laws. We're ready for every good deed. It means we obey the law, we, re- we respect authority, we pay our taxes. Furthermore, we do all these things willingly, humbly, peacefully, and in good conscience. Conscience is key here. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But what happens when government commands you to disobey the Lord or to violate Christian conscience? What do you do? You do what every Christian has done since the very beginning, Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than man. We submit to the authority of Christ. When a government tells a church that they cannot gather or sing or observe the Lord's table or engage in fellowship, that government has now themselves engaged in disobedience to the command of Christ. And that church is obligated to obey the Lord. That's what's happening in Canada right now. This Sunday, as I'm speaking... There are churches all across Canada who've been locked down. Not even like they can go online and then do something else. They have had lockdown measures. They can't even meet in houses. 15% capacity. They can't move around. They can't talk to each other. They can't sing. They can't do anything. Right now, churches across Canada are now opening up in defiance of that civil disobedience made by the government in obedience to Christ. In the state of Victoria in Australia... It is now illegal to pray for people who desire to find healing and deliverance from sexual immorality, namely homosexuality and gender dysphoria. It is illegal to pray for them. So what do you do when the state tells you you can't pray? You do like Daniel does. You throw open your windows and you pray publicly. And you defy. What about us? Thankfully, and I mean that truthfully, thankfully, There are legal protections for us right now. In addition to the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, Article 5 of the New Hampshire State Constitution says this, Every individual has a natural and unalienable right to worship God according to the dictates of his own conscience. In the manner and season most agreeable to the dictates of his own conscience, provided he doth not disturb the public peace or disturb others in their religious worship. Now, that is a fair and just law that accords with the will of God. 
And even as recently as last week, the United States Supreme Court upheld a ruling that the government cannot interfere with worship practices of a church, even in the middle of a pandemic. Again, we are people who are under authority. We are under authority, and we are obligated to submit to that authority. But when there is a battle between church and state, why am I talking about this? Because this is coming. It's already happening all around the world. There have been court cases even in our country right now. Thankfully, thankfully, greater heads have prevailed and the law has been upheld. Every single Supreme Court case on the issue of religious liberty have upheld the Constitution. But this isn't going to go away, my friends. It's not going to go away. When there is a battle between church and state, we must ultimately submit to the authority of Jesus Christ. And this will become more increasingly relevant for us in the months and years, and so it's important for us to know these things. And what better time to talk about this than these verses that are specifically talking about the authority of Christ. And so what do we do? What do we do? We humble our hearts. We get into the Bible. We know His Word. We understand His will. We take heart because we know that God is sovereign and Christ is our authority. I want to close with Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take their counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession." You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Beloved, I am encouraged that the Scripture teaches the authority of Christ. And we can take heart to know that this battle is not ours to fight. There is no battle for us to knuckle under. Rather, what is the content of our warfare? It's submission to authority. We submit to the authority that's placed over us in the human realm, but if there is a conflict, we submit to the authority of Christ. And He's the one who goes before us. And He's the one who protects us. And He's the one who guards us and guides us. But I would even say this to you. Beyond all that, beyond the cultural climate, what's going on in the world, let's bring it back a second here. Do we understand and affirm and acknowledge the authority of Christ over this assembly? Do you acknowledge and affirm the authority of Christ over your marriage and over your family. Because if you don't do that, if you don't acknowledge the authority of Christ in your own household, then how will you ever 
submit to authority outside of that sphere. And I would go in deeper than this, and this applies all the way to the entire Sermon on the Mount. You must also acknowledge the authority of Christ in your own heart. That you must therefore be a person under the authority of Christ and submit to Him in every possible way. And as you're trying to navigate what's going on in the world and in your life and your day day ahead of you, what decisions that you make, everything like that, that you would go before God and say, Lord, I want to submit to you and honor you with my thoughts, with my words, with my actions, what I post on social media, what I say to other people, the conversations around the tables, everything I do in my life. I want to acknowledge you as Lord. And I want other people to see that there is authority in my life, and it's Christ. Are you submitting to the authority of Jesus Christ in your own life? I pray you do. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the sovereign Lord, that we don't have to be worried, we don't have to be afraid, we don't have to be this people preparing for war, with the outside world. However, Lord, you do tell us to battle warfare in our own hearts, warfare against our own flesh, warfare against our own disobedience and rebellion, warfare against every impulse that rebels against you. Father, I pray that as we meditate on this notion of the authority of Christ, that it would strike home first, that we would be, as a body of believers, a submitted people who genuinely and humbly subject ourselves to you above all. Lord, I pray that you would have mercy on this assembly. As we move forward, I pray that you would have mercy and help those who are hurting right now. Lord, there are so many people who are really struggling. Those who are having genuine concern, those who are sick and cannot come and join us right now, I pray for them. I earnestly pray, Lord, that you would encourage their hearts, that you would help them in their physical body, that you would help them spiritually, and, Lord, that you would encourage them, Lord, that they are part of this assembly, even if they're struggling to make it here together. Father, we don't want to do anything that is against your will, We don't want to do anything that is disobedient. And so, Lord, I pray that you would continue to show your grace and kindness on this church. Help us, Lord, as we go before. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.